The Rwando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit Rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. So in my interview with Carolyn Elliott, author of Existential Kink, uh, we speak about a concept that's in her book called Getting Off on Every Stroke. And a couple of people have asked me to explain what this means. How do you do it? Can, can I flush this out a little more? So that's what I'm going to speak about in this, inter- in this episode is how to get off on every stroke. So um, Carolyn's book, which is great, you should check it out, uh, kind of expands on this and uses uh, this root, which could be taken as a sexual metaphor, into dealing with challenges in life. Uh, and, and actually, I think you know one of the main pieces of her book is uh, reintegrating your unconscious. She uh, references this great quote by Carl Jung, and I'm not going to get it word for word off the top of my head, but something like, um, until you make your unconscious conscious, it will run your life and you will call it fate, which I think is a beautiful quote. She, she mentions it a few times in, in that book. And that's essentially, I, I believe, the root of existential kink and the function of getting off on every stroke. This idea, which I will explain in this video, which is... Uh, uh, regrouping, regrouping your dissociated archetypes, re- reconnecting to patterns in yourself or unconscious behaviors that are dry, pulling you in different directions and seemingly causing you suffering. So this, uh, so I'm not going to speak too much on existential kink. That's uh, Carolyn's term. Uh, there might be nuances to it or things she's added to it that I'm unaware of. So I'm not going to go. Uh, I'm not going to try to explain that. Uh, But this idea of getting off on every stroke, I do feel very qualified to speak on because uh, Carolyn and I met many years ago in a, uh, I used to say this euphemistically, but I'll say it straight, uh, in a sex cult, a matriarchal cult called One Taste, uh, where they explored different mysteries of the human experience or different aspects of human consciousness through a sexual practice called orgasmic meditation. So... This idea of getting off on every stroke was one of their famous or their, their common axioms or things that they would kind of drill into our head. It was, a, it was a skill. It was also words to live by. And it can be taken on a few different levels. On the most superficial level or the most surfacey level, uh, you can look, look at it just as an analogy, right? It's uh, an analogy of a sexual experience, of a sexual skill. Uh, that can be applied metaphorically, if you will, to dealing with uncomfortable life moments. If you like mystical language, you could call it alchemizing your suffering or alchemizing pain or alchemizing frustration into pleasure or joy or happy experiences. And I actually believe that uh, one of the reasons why Carolyn chose the term existential kink is it's drawing from uh, BDSM imagery or kink, kink, you know, sexual kink imagery where, uh, say, a, a bottom really likes getting spanked and you know, even though it's something that causes physical pain on some level, uh, the, the bottom says, thank you, daddy, and it makes it feel really good and it heightens her pleasure. That's one level. Uh, but it actually can be taken a little bit more literally where the actual physical skill, because there's a skill to this, this is something that we trained in, specifically women trained in, in, in one taste, that can be practiced in sexuality. Uh, I think it's most easy to practice in a sexual setting but it can be applied into life. It's a, a physical skill just like grounding or uh, somatic awareness. In fact, they all, they're all kind of, they all lump together. And on kind of a spiritual level, if you will, or you can almost look at it as like 
extreme Taoism, which I know is an oxymoron. And, you know, perhaps there's a, you know, if a, a Taoism expert watches this, he'll wag his finger at me for my explanations. Or, or maybe he'll just shrug because he's Taoist. Um, but it's like instead of just going with the flow, uh, it's like aggressively going with the flow or like um, uh, yeah, getting off on the flow, like achieving like orgasmic states potentially on whatever life is throwing at you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flush this all out. So for definitions, to get off on every stroke is to derive pleasure from everything. Uh, in one taste language or in this worldview, I should say, a stroke can be like a physical stroke of touch from a lover um, or some sort of partner. Uh, but also, I mean, when you go deep into this kind of worldview, it's like every, 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 every moment can be a stroke. Every time you engage with reality can be a stroke. Every, every quantum of attention that you use with reality is a stroke. So I'm not going to go too deep into the uh, mystical stuff, especially not off the bat. Um, but the idea in general, and the reason why this is a, an applicable life skill to everybody, is that if you, if you can really learn to get off on every stroke, you can basically handle everything that life throws at you and handle it with a smile, potentially. And, you know, this language, getting off on every stroke, existential kink, obviously they're kind of more feminized language. It's like getting off on every stroke is created by a woman from a female perspective. I'll explain the sexual practice. Even existential kink, obviously Carolyn's a woman. I think most people, even if you're really kinky, most guys probably aren't, like, don't like... They don't relish at the idea of getting spanked by Daddy Dom or getting spanked by the universe even. So maybe that imagery doesn't fit for most men. So uh, one of the things I'm going to do in this episode, just because I'm a guy, is kind of share perhaps uh, a male translation or a more uh, male applicable translation of these terms. But essentially, this is staying grounded and engaged. Like the same stuff I speak about in the arouse control episodes of like being able to fully engage with a stimulus from reality, whether it's a sexual stimulus or just some experience that causes some feeling in you, physically or emotionally, and having the capacity to enjoy it rather than uh, experience it as frustration or suffering. And, uh, you know, if you caught the episode I did on the Road of Trials, this will pair up with that. The Road of Trials kind of viewed hard times in your life from like a, a top-down perspective or from a Looking at it like as a, as a stage in your hero's journey, this is more the immediate like physical side of things. <clears throat> so this episode has three parts. First, we're going to speak about the origins of the idea in orgasmic meditation and uh, some of its roots in Western occultism. Um, we're going to speak about the more grounded side of the skill, the physiological experience and what's going on mentally, the psychological skill, if you will. Uh, using some analogies from BDSM. Um, and then I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to touch a little bit on what we might call the mystical side of things, uh, which for me, anytime I'm speaking about anything mystical, it's about how you uh, create your subjective reality um, without being deluded, of course. Uh, because essentially, you know, especially, you know, if you're a masculine person, you might be hearing this and being like, oh, this getting off on every stroke, that sounds like you're just learning how to endure unpleasant things. Well, no, no, it's not exactly that. There's a bit of that, but on a, on a level that maybe is a little bit unprovable, but I'm going to try to show it when it comes to social dynamics. A lot of mystical concepts can like be observed very clearly uh, in social dynamics. 
Um, even the skill can be used as in manipulation, which is not my point here. Please do not use this for the dark side. Um, I, will, I will share how it has been used or have witnessed it being used. In a way, getting off on every stroke is kind of a way of guiding reality. If you're familiar with BDSM, it's kind of a way of topping from the bottom, in, in a sense. Because really what you're learning here is deep, deep surrender. Which, if you are a spiritual person, is probably a word you like. And as I mentioned, I'm going to try to apply all of this stuff or translate it uh, for a more masculine worldview. Um, yeah, because a lot of these terms are from the woman's perspective. First, let's jump into origins. So, I learned this at One Taste. Um, I met Carolyn at One Taste, and One Taste's main thing that 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 uh, bound their community together, where a lot of their analogies were drawn from, uh, where uh, a lot of the very applicable life skills or like uh, social skills that we all developed in terms of developing intuition and reading people and yes, manipulating people, um, came from a practice called orgasmic meditation, uh, abbreviated as OM. <clears throat> I found out about it uh, through a TED talk that the founder did in 20, uh, 2007. Um, I jumped into their organization for various reasons. I was kind of going through my own existential crisis as a 23-year-old, um, but also was, uh, they were featured in Tim Ferriss's book. I was a huge Tim Ferriss fan at the time. Um, in Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Body, uh, the orgasm chapter in that book, or the sex chapter, was uh, written with them, I believe. And if you want to learn more about that whole thing and my journey with One Taste, you can check out my uh, When I Was in a Matriarchal Sex Cult episodes. <clears throat> But this practice of orgasmic meditation trained, essentially trained uh, sensitivity. It trained empathy on a very pra practical level. It really de demystified empathy to me, at least, um, because it trained. Uh, there's two. There's. I'll explain the practice first, actually. So typically, a man would stroke a woman's clitoris for 15 minutes in a prescribed fashion. Um, it was it was on a timer. It was kind of like a it was kind of like a Bikram yoga class where everything was like very uh, strict on a timer, but the entire stroke was just up and down. Like there's no there's no like circles. There's no it was it was just it wasn't even uh, stroking her entire clitoris. It was stroking a specific spot on her clitoris, like the the most minute spot where the most sensation could be felt. And this practice actually had roots. Uh, you know this this what they call the container that this uh, ten step ritual done over 15 minutes, was created by One Taste and, and Nicole, the founder, um, but it was adapted from another organization, cult-like organization called the Welcome Consensus that teaches about sexuality and a different kind of clitoris stroking practice called doing, a deliberate orgasm. If you have studied Tantra or into sex, conscious sexuality, you may have heard of the Bodanskis. They had a different version of this clitoris stroking practice called... Um, Extended massive orgasm, uh, yeah. Well, you can imagine, you can imagine it's something like that. Uh, and then all of these had roots in another organization, which was a, uh, it still exists, a, a commune that started in the '60s called the called Lafayette Morehouse, run by a guy named Vic Barranco, who many considered to be one of the uh, prominent cult leaders of the '60s. He was buddies with. Um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Scientology, and Werner Earhart, who founded Est, which became Landmark Worldwide. Anyway, I talk about all that cult stuff in my cult episode, so I'm not going to go too deep into that. But this, this is kind of a, there's, there's a lineage that goes all the way back to Aleister Crowley 
uh, basically Western occult sexual practices. Now, the 15-minute the ohm container, uh, One Taste became the most popular of all of these organizations because they were really good at marketing. And one of the things that made them good, really good at marketing is that they took this pretty esoteric kind of, or this practice that had occult, um, what's the word, roots, um, and made it a lot more marketable. One of the things is making it only 15 minutes, like most people were down to try this weird thing for 15 minutes. And, um, and, it, and it had a specific container so that people from all over the world, you know, and there's many thousands, uh, tens of thousands people oming at its peak, uh, doing the ohm practice. Uh, they'd be able to link up in the same way that you go to a Bikram. I mean, actually, I don't know if Bikram even still exists because he's had his own things. Um, but if you go to a certain kind of yoga in a different part of the world, you, you expect, okay, Ashtanga yoga is always the sequence, you know, whatever. But it trained, uh, it trained sensitivity on a deep level because the reason why it was just an up-down stroke, the reason why you weren't supposed to vary your stroke or do anything fancy was that it wasn't about learning how to... Um, I should say that becoming a good stroker was about learning how to empathize on a sensational level down to like the most infinitesimal moment. So like, so both partners is typically a man stroking a woman, sometimes a woman stroking a woman, always stroking clitoris. Um, the, the strokers, who are typically men, would uh, learn the skill of like precise empathy. It would give you this moment-to-moment -moment feedback of learning how to read a woman's body. And in the beginning, a stroker would, um, there'd be a lot of communication between stroker and strokey. Like they'd both be trying to find the, the speed, pressure, and location on the clitoris that allowed for the most sensation. But as a stroker would become more and more sensitive, and I noticed this in myself after doing this a lot over the two years, uh, later on, I would just be able to sense exactly what the woman wanted, sometimes before she could open her mouth, sometimes before she even realized it herself. Um, and this might seem a little crazy to someone, to some people, but if you've ever done any sort of repeated practice where you get, you're getting feedback from another body, like tango dancing is a great example. Like all tango dancers understand what I'm explaining because if you've ever danced tango, it's all about feeling like the minute movements or the, the, the minute uh, weight shifts or even uh, kind of feeling the intention of your partner uh, before, uh, you know, in sync. You know, that's what make good tango dancers good tango dancers. Um, obviously, if you've done something like Tantra, uh, this, is, this is a skill developed. And I would even say if you've done a grappling martial art like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Judo or uh, wrestling to some degree, uh, or Aikido, I guess. I've never actually really done Aikido. But, or Tai Chi push hands, which I know a lot of people don't consider to be a real martial art, but it is. There, there's Tai Chi competition. And uh, it's kind of like uh, judo rules, but you can't grab. Like you have to throw your opponent without grabbing them. So you really have to sense each other. Um, anyway, these are all... Basically, I'm trying to just show that this own practice is not the only place where this, uh, this skill is developed. Right? This is a, a thing. And actually... Uh, I'm going to do another episode on this idea, but on thinking with your body, I've been reading this book. It's a really great book by John Coates, uh, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, going on the, going on, speaking about the physiological shifts when we, we are entering high-stress environments. He's mostly speaking about uh, testosterone and things like that. Um, but he, he does have a whole chapter on um, how our pre-conscious nervous system works. And for a long time since one taste, I've been, I've just been trying to have a model of understanding of how it was that a stroker like myself could sense what a woman's body wanted before she even did. Like that seemed kind of crazy. 
I remember my finger could move to the spot that it was supposed to move before she could even realize it herself. That, that always seemed like this magical thing. But I only recently learned from this book that our, uh, our reptilian nervous system, uh, the nervous system that moves our muscles, can react to things many milliseconds before our emotions can process and certainly before our conscious mind can process. So a lot of times it seemed pretty magical that like my finger would move to the right exact at the right exact moment before she could even realize it. A lot of I mean a lot of women when they would own with a an experienced stroker would be like, wow, you moved there before I even realized I wanted that. That's basically the skill. We were learning empathy on a very deep level. And uh, and this translated into uh, being able to sense people's feelings. Like I, I became very confident in my intuitive guesses on people's emotions um, because I just learned through this stroking practice, I know it sounds crazy to some, through the stroking practice, being able to really trust when I had a gut feeling, I just like, I, I had so much feedback from communicating through this clit stroking practice that I, I developed that. So that was the stroker side of things. But there's also a, a skill for the strokees, uh, the, the ones receiving. A lot of people would be like, okay, I get what, I get the skill that the man gets from it, like he's learning how to read a woman's body, but like the woman just lays there and, and feels pleasure. Like, no, not exactly. Actually, not at all. Um, there's also a skill to receiving. And that's where this getting off on every stroke comes from. Um, because if uh, a good stroker, this is the analogy I use, a good stroker is like a, basically both partners are trying to find the most precise, perfect stroke between them where the most sensation can be felt. The exact speed, exact pressure, exact intensity, exact location on the clitoris, right? So a good stroker, the, the axiom for strokers would be stroke for your pleasure. Because if uh, a guy was thinking too much, as I just described, like the, the conscious, or conscious processing is too slow, and a woman's body especially can shift before the conscious mind can, it can shift in these infinitesimal moments, uh, the way to like, disengage the guy from thinking too much and trying to read her moans or like, look at her face, like, the way to just shut all that off and just like, feel was a stroke for his pleasure. So instead of trying to get her off or get her to like him or try to do something for her, he would try to stroke her clitoris in a way that actually felt good for his finger. And that kind of like tuned him in. So a good stroker was like a precision shooter. Even like with, uh, you know, if you think of a basketball or like archery or something, like the target's really far away, the hoop's really far away, it's really small, but a really good stroker can still find the perfect stroke even under sub-ideal conditions, meaning like, a really good stroker could uh, find the orgasmic zone with a woman who perhaps is really numbed out. Let's say she spent years of uh, being closed off or years of using hard vibrators or whatever, right? On the woman's side, the woman's version of uh, stroke for your pleasure was what we're talking about here, which is getting off on every stroke. Um, because in the way that a good stroker was a precision shooter, can like shoot a tiny target from far away, a good strokey, a good receiver, was a really big target. So either one, a good stroker, a good strokey, can make up for a lack of skills in the other partner. And um, again, if you've ever tango danced, uh, well, if you haven't, I'm just gonna explain it, I've done a little bit. It's like uh, a lot of people think, oh, I'm not a good dancer, I better dance with inexperienced people so we can, you know, because the, the experienced person will be too ahead of me, like in martial arts. Actually, with dancing, since dancing is cooperative and not competitive, it's actually the opposite. It's a lot easier to dance with an experienced person, even if you're in the leader role, right? Like, I, you know, I've done a little tango. If I dance with someone who's done tango a lot, it's almost like driving a, 
uh, a high performance car that like does the perfect thing, even though I'm not a great driver. Whereas dancing with a person who's not used to tango, a woman who's not used to da- dancing tango, it's like requires a lot of effort. We end up tipping over a lot. Like it actually is actually harder. Same thing with this own practice. A woman who could really get off on anything, and I'm going to break down exactly how one learns that. But uh, if a woman could really get off on anything, even if a guy is really clumsy or he doesn't have, he hasn't built up his intuition or he's nervous. If she can still get off, then they're both. Then the, 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 the each stroke is a success, right? It's because um, this whole own practice for both parties kind of creates this positive feedback. If they can get on the stroke, on the on the stroke of pleasure uh, or sensation, it kind of creates this positive feedback where like he feels more comfortable, or he can like tune into the the right stroke better, and then uh, you know she's getting off even more because he's even better on the stroke, and it goes back and forth. Like that's like a positive ohm. Whereas uh, if you've ever been in bed with someone, uh, maybe you were nervous and your partner was nervous and you're both like getting more and more nervous and like it makes you fumble more and you're both getting more and more nervous and like after a while it's just like, ah, it doesn't feel right. Uh, I mean, this this happens with a lot of types of interaction. Um, That's the opposite. That'd be like negative feedback. And, you know, we can, you know, even if this is all, even if these are all new ideas, um... We know what the opposite of someone who doesn't get off, right? Like, uh, like that resting bitch energy is the opposite, right? That's being super numb. You can't feel someone like that. Um, uh, it's kind of like the. Uh, anyway, you, you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, you, if you've been, if you've probably interacted with people where maybe everything on the surface actually looks great, like they're trying to seem friendly, they're trying to be happy, but like you have this feeling of like something is being blocked off, something's being untrue. Um, you know, it's just like we, we can sense these things. We all, we all have some level of empathy. But anyway, this, uh, this whole thing of getting off on every stroke um, is where a woman could no longer, if a woman could really learn how to get off on every stroke, or anyone, but we're speaking from the woman's perspective in this own practice, then she could cover for any kind of bad stroking. And this would translate into life. So, uh, you know, I've gotten, the, the thing that I've gotten probably the most hate on is that I speak about my matriarchal cult experience mostly positively, like, People don't seem to like uh, when someone has a challenge, when someone has an experience with an oppressive group of people where he doesn't, or the person doesn't go into victim mode, right? Like people give me a lot of shit, like a lot of, like my cult videos have some mean comments because, uh, because I'm just not a victim about it. Um, and obviously bad things happen, that's, uh, that's a whole other thing, I'll leave that for other videos, but uh, what a lot of people don't understand, and which is why, you know, I, I'm actually pretty critical of some of the... Uh, uh, so some of the series that I was in, you know, One Taste has been covered by a lot of major, uh, major outlets. Um, uh, it was that a lot of them missed the point of like this was kind of a really interesting uh, sociological experience where, um, I mean, one it was the, one of the few matriarchal run organizations uh, in modern modern cult history. But anyway, I mean, this whole getting off on every stroke thing was an example of like extreme female empowerment. Like a lot of people are very quick to be like, oh, women were, were touched, they must have been oppressed. Like, no, no, I mean, it was a matriarchal organization where women had a lot of power. And one of the things that gave women power was not, was not, because that, was not the fact that they were coddled, the way that a lot of people think is the right way to, to um, protect, uh, you know, historically, um, what are these words? Historically disadvantaged groups. Uh, historically oppressed groups like like all of women uh, this this whole str- uh, skill of getting off on every stroke 
put all the power back in the woman's hands because if you just take it out of the sexual setting, if you can get off on every stroke, it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside. You become independent of external things, especially if you're talking about like how a man treats you. I know this could be taken to extremes, but like if you could really derive pleasure from a sub-ideal stroke, well then you're not, you're not suffering anymore. But beyond that, and here's where it maybe gets a little bit uh, trippy, is that, and uh, this is something that would be experienced in the, in the own practice, is that when a receiver, when a strokey could get off on every stroke, that getting off somehow guided the stroke. And you know, this is the positive feedback loop that I was speaking about. Like maybe a guy would be a really bad stroker, he'd be totally off. But the woman was a really skilled strokey, so she could get off on his bad stroke. Somehow, and this is, you know, tango's, the analogy to tango is the best I can do to, to really break this down, but like somehow that would kind of communicate to him how to stroke correctly. And like, you know, because I, I, I taught for one taste for a while, like you would see like the best thing for a guy, and I coached a lot of men in this organization or in this community, the best thing for a guy to learn intuition was to partner up with women who could really get off. Like something about that taught them to stroke better because when a woman could really get off she could guide the stroke and this is like the skill called bottoming right like when it comes to getting people to do what you want most people think of the masculine version which is topping like dominating people but bottoming which is like i would say the feminine method of control or the feminine uh, technique of getting power over people is getting off so hard that the other person naturally wants to have you get off more and I, I made a video a couple of years ago about um, bottoming to cops, like when, uh, you know, I mean, not not physically, but like, you know, if, you're, if you get pulled over and you, you, you're, the cops were writing you a ticket, try to argue with him or try to like dominate, like the stupidest thing you could do is dominate a cop because forget about, you know, the, the guy's ego or whatever, like for a cop to maintain his role in society, he has to maintain top position, right? You know, whatever your opinions are of policemen, like that's just the, the reality of their job. Like they have to do that. Um, you know, obviously some are dicks, some are not dicks, but like they have to maintain top position. So if you if you do what most guys do, which really try to argue with the cop or get in their face, the cop has to be a dick actually to dominate them and reassert top position. Otherwise, their job, you know, they can't do their job. A better thing to get out of a ticket, which I've done a number of times, is to bottom. It's like to be really kind, not to be servile, but to like really get off and like just assume, you're, you're almost like uh, assuming a reality or like incepting a reality that, hey, we're on the same team here, right? Like, you know, just, you know, I know this, uh, maybe some feminists will get angry at this idea, but this is, this is how women have ha had, the women who have had power throughout 5,000 years of oppression, this is how they had it. It wasn't that, there's a, a famous line by Anton LaVey, it's like, there have always been women in power despite the patriarchy. They weren't running, they weren't leading the armies. They were sleeping with the men and controlling the men who ran the armies, right? And that's like real power because they didn't even have to, they didn't even have to go into battle. Anyway, uh, so anyway, so I, I did this own practice for a while uh, and I noticed that, uh, actually, wait, hold on, I'm jumping around. I have a lot of arrows off of this, this one point. So I just want to make sure I'm going in order. Um, the skill of bottoming can be applied. This is, this is one of the things where was, this getting off on every stroke was applied to manipulation because you would see 
where uh, in sales, for instance, one taste would do this a lot, where a person would maybe put up, uh, put up resistance uh, because most people have some sort of resistance to sales. But even like it's almost like every every negative thing that seemed negative, every resistance point, a really skilled one taste salesperson or really skilled Omer would somehow bottom to it or somehow get off on it that made it feel good. And the thing about bottoming is kind of like um, it's kind of like Abe Lincoln's quote. He has a quote. Um, he had a quote. Uh, I destroy my enemies by making them my friends. This is essentially what bottoming is. You're getting people on the same reality. You're getting someone to do the thing that you would want them to do of their own volition because they now want to do it. So the skill of receiving, even though I was in the stroker position most of the time in Oming, I mean, I grew a lot in one taste. I spoke about that more in that episode. But specifically with this getting off on every stroke, one of the things that one of the impetuses, impetuses uh, that had me join one taste, aside from my existential crisis, but related to my existential crisis is that I had a, I had a psychogenic sexual dysfunction. I, I just basically had become so closed off emotionally that my, my dick stopped working. I had ED. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I was particularly interested in this like sexual organization to, to get my mojo back. And uh, I spent a period of time, um, you know, because I was so closed off. I was so, so not getting off on reality. I was, I was so numb to reality. Um, that I, I, I just things didn't work down there, and I part of my healing or part of my recovery from this was I spent a month where I mainly received, like I stopped trying to have intercourse because that was like giving me this stress response all the time. Uh, I was contracting a lot, uh, you know. Physically, I'll explain what that means in a second in part two. Um, I I basically spent a month where what it looked like is I ended up getting like a lot of head essentially, and. In that, I got to practice the experience of getting off on every stroke because in the beginning, because I was so numb, like I couldn't even feel much from oral. That's how numb I was. But by putting more attention on it, by trying to, by accepting reality, by not resisting, I'm, I'm going to speak about the, the how-tos, but by doing this over and over, eventually I did become more sensitive because uh, sensitivity is a skill that you can work on. And even if, you know, if you're a guy who's working on being more grounded, like like in the mask and archetype challenge, I've all, I have seven different techniques for grounding, seven different things to use your attention on to become more grounded, but they all are essentially putting your attention on physical reality, right? You're putting all of your attention on physical reality and dropping value judgments and, and dropping whether things are good or bad or, or worrying about the futures. Like all of your attention is going into feeling the moments which calms your mind, which allows you to handle more as opposed to trying to escape the moment, which is what people are doing when they're in their head or when they're anxious or whatever. And what I found over time is like, yes, I did, I did, get, I did get my mojo back. It was a, a wonderful healing experience, which is why even though I, I, I can condemn one taste and all the bad things they did to people with everyone else, I also have to admit that it was an overall positive experience for me. I did get a lot from it. I did experience a lot of healing or recovery, if you will. Um, what I started to notice is that as I learned how to get off on things, people seemed, I mean, women seemed to want to touch me more. It's like, and the best analogy I can use for this is like, if you've ever given someone a gift and it seemed like they didn't like it or they didn't care about it, that doesn't feel very good, right? If, uh, or to use a sexual experience that probably most of us have had, if you've ever gone down on someone and they're just giving you no feedback, no reaction. 
uh, that feels pretty bad. Like just it's not that interesting to like go down on someone who is just like ice uh, up top. But on the flip side, to give a gift to someone who's like who's really genuinely excited to receive your gift, like that feels really good. That that you kind of want to give them more gifts. In fact, you know the thing. Uh, you know, my, my my girlfriend and I speak about this a lot. It's like the thing I need. Like, I like to do stuff for her. The thing that I need in return is not for her to do stuff for me. It's just for her to appreciate it. Like when I when I build something for her and she gets super excited and super like happy and appreciative and grateful, that feels so good. And I want to do more things for her. Like that's 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 the, that's already a fair exchange. Um, same thing with sexuality. If you're if you're going down on someone and they're really getting off, it makes it more fun for you. It makes it, it allows you to share in the pleasure. And as I learned how to get off more and more. It was like people wanted to give me things. People wanted to, to touch, like women wanted to touch me more. Down to the point where the same like skill, and this maybe sounds weird or whatever, this will come off however it comes off, but I remember being in bed with women. This was still during kind of my healing phase early on where uh, I would, before, you know, sometimes clothes will still be on, like just by like kind of pre-getting off, like, like getting off on this thing that hadn't even happened yet, like this idea of receiving oral let's say for some reason and this all could be in my head maybe there's other cues that were happening and that I'm not saying this is like a one-to-one thing or I'm not trying to make a causal relationship here but what I noticed was when I would get into this skill of getting off on something even before it happened it seemed like women wanted to do it and, and maybe there's other signals I was giving off maybe I was like unconsciously looking down or something and I don't mean that if that's the case then this is not uh well anyway um but there's something about like really getting off on something that makes people want to do it. And you could even mystify this a little bit or like a lot of the law of attraction people, a lot of people with positive like mindset stuff talk about the importance of gratitude, like being grateful for stuff that you want as if it already happened as opposed to longing for it in the future. Like something about that, whether it's in your head or whether it's self-fulfilling prophecy or somehow it does actually make the universe move, there's something positive about that. Right, like getting off, getting off on the thing that you want before it even happens, often makes it happen. Like going back to the parking ticket thing, like or the the speeding ticket thing, like the times that I've gotten out of tickets, I just felt I got into this mode of like feeling so grateful to the cop that he decided to not give me the ticket. And the times that I've gotten, I mean, I haven't done this 100 percent of the time, but the times I've gotten out of tickets. It's been exactly that. It's like some. I just gave that. I just like got into that reality. Not that I said anything or tried to convince him. I got into that reality, and the cop was like, "All right, you know, just you know, check your speed again, or in the future, whatever." <clears throat> so anyway, these are my experiences with it. Let's go into part two on actually how to do it. So something that they would often say, another axiom in one taste, uh, when it came to any experience, they would always say it's just sensation. Which can is a line that could be manipulated, used manipulatively, but there, there's truth truth to it. Like every experience we have, you know, if you think of the triune brain, there's our reptilian nervous system, which I mentioned reacts uh, way faster than our emotional nervous system. Uh, there's our limbic system. There's our, our conscious our conscious uh, mind, um, and they they've kind of uh, evolved on top of each other, or they've grown on top of each other, developed, if you will. On the most root level of experiencing reality is is sensation. Right and sensation uh, is value neutral. A lot of us, when we feel a sensation or we feel an emotion that corresponds with the sensation, usually in our torso, we are quick to judge it. Like, oh, this is a good feeling. This is a bad feeling. But you probably know there's a lot of feelings that 
can be reinterpreted. Like the, one of the things that Tony Robbins does a lot, or one of the terms that he's popularized is reframing. Uh, actually, might come from Jim Rohn, but it doesn't matter. Personal development people they talk about reframing a lot. I talk about reframing some reframing sometimes. What is a reframe? It's essentially you have this experience, you have this sensation, you have interpretation, which is unpleasant. You create a new uh, interpretation of it so that now you have the same feeling. It's like the sensation didn't go away. The reality didn't go away. But now you're experiencing it positively. In one case, we could practice boiling things down to the value-neutral sensation because when you can really just pay attention to how it feels in your body, there's not necessarily a good or a bad. And where this comes into, because obviously some sensations are painful, some are pleasurable. Our reptilian nervous system experiences the world this way because uh, anything that's painful is probably bad for our survival and we should go away or we should close off to it or, or not take it in. Whereas something that's good for our survival, we should open our aperture. We should take more of it in, whether it's through our mouths or through our eyes, through our senses, uh, through our being. Pain and pleasure. And the thing that one taste would often say is uh, uh, so-called bad feelings is simply sensation beyond your ability to approve. That dog barked because he knows it's true. Uh, pain is essentially the interpretation that you must contract to the stimulus. Pleasure is typically the experience of expanding to the stimulus. Now, we, we know that you know some people love roller coasters, some people hate roller coasters. Some people love scary movies, some people hate scary movies. Different foods, some people make, it makes you contract, some people, it's like, yeah, give me more durian or whatever it is, right? Uh, contraction is, uh, is the effect of the fight or flight nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, it's you know, getting away from something, it's hardening against a challenge, something bad for you. Uh, uh, the rela relaxation is an effect of the parasympathetic nervous system, the feed or breed nervous system, the opening, right? And even down to like uh, physiological responses, when your sympathetic nervous system is active, your pupils contract. Uh, when, you're in your, when your parasympathetic nervous system is active and your sympathetic nervous system is not, your pupils expand to take more in. Like when we're looking at someone we're attracted to or we're aroused, our pupils get big. In one taste, everyone's pupils were always really big. Like everyone was like turned on, everyone was happy, everyone had a flood of oxytocin, it was a very chill environment. Um, so essentially, on one level, the skill of getting off on every stroke is expanding and accepting and approving of the stimulus you're experiencing uh, so that you can experience it in a positive way as opposed to contracting against it, which is what causes suffering. Uh, and just for like maybe a more masculine spin on this or like, you know, something that maybe relates to men a little more, we can take a sensation, because obviously all right, you, you can imagine like some sensations, it's hard to conceive that a normal, healthy person could possibly derive it from pleasure. We can imagine it's like a lot of painful things. But for something that's kind of within the realm of reason, um, say if, if you've ever been in a fight, if you've ever sparred or anything in boxing, there's like kind of a mode you can get in uh, where I think a lot of guys, if they have any, any machismo in there, maybe the, you can get, you've been in this headspace where like, you're just like in that come at me bro experience where like, it's not like getting punched in the face ever feels good, right? Like no one's ever like, oh, like oh, orgasmic pleasure, hit me in the nose again, hit me in the jaw. But there is an experience where instead of, um, instead of like cowering and contracting, like, oh, please don't hit me again, which is an extremely painful experience. It's like, like hit me again. Like it, it almost feels good, right? And, and like in those moments, obviously it's still killing your brain cells. It's still bad for you. 
uh, there's something about like welcoming the experience that makes it not be a suffering experience. And like, say, if you're sparring or in a fight, it's actually kind of useful, right? Like to immediately cower when you get punched in the face, perhaps it's not the best thing if you actually have to deal with a threat. If we were to break down getting off on every stroke, it's uh, reducing everything down to the physical experience, right? Lobotomizing, dropping, uh, dropping your interpretations, which is often what causes the worry and stuff. Um, I believe when, you know, one of the, when we're talking about uh, existential kink, the applications, most people aren't thinking about like how to find a spank pleasurable. Uh, most people are thinking about like how to, you know, the fact that I'm worried about money, how to, how to make that manageable and how to move through that so I'm not stuck, how to um, have the terrible experience of writer's block and not take it as this like painful, awful thing, but instead feel it and move through it. Like that's part one is, is uh, and this is why we reduce things down to sensation. You drop that experience. And you know, when, when we did the Road of Trials episode, I was speaking about kind of rewriting that narrative. This is kind of dropping all narrative and reducing it down to the feeling. Uh, essentially, this is what grounding is, is reducing things down to the sensation. And from there, once you have the sensation, the value neutral experience in your body, instead of contracting against it, can you welcome it? If you're familiar with the Sedona method, this is essentially what the Sedona method is. It's questions that allow one to reclaim agency. The Sedona method is obviously like a, a mental version of this. It's like welcoming instead of resisting, uh, which resisting causes suffering. Welcoming is like, well, if you choose something, kind of like, kind of, kind of like in boxing, you know, like if you are choosing to be in there, if you're choosing to fight, if you're choosing to put yourself in the way of a punch, it actually doesn't hurt as much as if someone just punches you in the face out of nowhere, right? Um, I mean, in, in combat sports, they often say the, the, the punch that really hurts is the one you didn't see coming, right? If you see it coming, you, you, there's some level of agency, some level of choice. And, uh, you know, this, this uh, getting off on every stroke has both an ability aspect and a willingness aspect. Are you able to feel it? Uh, and are you willing to feel it? Are you willing to welcome it? Are you willing to accept that this is reality? Like being brutally honest with like, this is the truth of the matter. It's not about positive thinking in the sense of, oh, my bank account's in the negative, but I'm just going to imagine it's in the positive. Because like some part of you is going to be like, that's, that's not freaking true, right? That's, there's something, there's something uh, unwhole there. Like you can say all those flowery law of attraction things, but if some part of you is like, yeah, but in the freaking negative, you're going to always have that disconnect and your, your, your whole self is not going to be working together. And then that's where like the young quote that Carolyn quotes often comes into play. Like if you leave that part unconscious, it will run your life and you will call it fate. Like this is all about integrating. It's welcoming the fact like, okay, this is the reality of the situation. So all of your archetypes, so all of the parts of you, that all of your parts of your awareness can be like, okay, this is the reality. And, but instead of fighting it or worrying about it or crying, woe is me, or wishing that this wasn't the case, you welcome it. Beyond welcoming it, getting off on it. So existential kink, for instance, or getting off on every stroke. You know, what one could translate this, like, are you talking about gratitude? Aren't you like, you know, just talking about being happy with the way things are? Or you know, the Sedona method is kind of a flower, you know, it's kind of a, I shouldn't say flower, eh, it's a lighter way of looking at things. Uh, existential kink or uh, getting off on every stroke is kind of like a more animalistic or almost like aggressive version of gratitude. Um, obviously, it, uh, existential kink draws on symbols from BDSM. One of the great examples and the one that made BDSM make sense to me 
was uh, a demonstration that my friend Omar Pani did at, at um, an event I hosted for men, the Masculine Underground Symposium. He was trying to explain to this, this crowd of guys, uh, like someone asked why women like getting choked. And he asked for a demonstration, uh, he asked for uh, a participant, he asked like, oh, can I, you know, can I put my hands on you, whatever. And he grabbed the guy's throat. Like this is a guy, he's a buddy of mine, like, Ohm just like grabbed the, grabbed the kid's throat. And then he let go. And then he was like, well, where was all of your attention? And the guy was like, like here on my throat, right? Because like when there's a threat to our survival, all of that stuff, uh, like, when there's a threat to our immediate survival, all those worries about stuff that aren't real kind of disappear. Like you're just worried about the hand on your throat. And almost explaining, one of the reasons why so many women like being choked in bed is that uh, when there's a hand on your throat or like, or, or a lot of things that maybe seem that sh- they should be unpleasant, like getting spanked or whatever, everyone's got their thing, uh, it forces all of your attention onto your body. And if you can have all of your attention on your body, obviously you can feel more of your body. And if you can welcome it, if you can accept it, if you can, you know, in, uh, I'm saying this phrase, thank you, daddy, because that's the thing that people who are into BDSM you know, you've probably heard it before. It's something about this accepting or welcoming or feeling grateful for this experience that's happening to you. Uh, instead of it's instead of contracting, it turns into pleasure or it mixes with your pleasure, and that's how it fuels the arousal for a lot of people who are uh, archetypally feminine. Um, and because, uh, like with pleasure, you know, it's it's nice to imagine yourself as you know being worshipped or whatever, or, you know, all that stuff that is a lot of people's fantasies, men and women as well. But it's very easy to check out on pleasure because there are no stakes with pure pleasure. The idea of like having all these concubines fanning you and feeding you grapes, like that's a nice thing to think about, but it's easy to float off in your mind when you, when you, even if that was your reality somehow, I don't know if Dan Bilzerian has this experience, but like, you know, it's easy to like think about other stuff because there's no stakes when things are just abundant and pleasurable. When there's a, ch- a threat to your survival, everything comes back into reality, right? There's no room to think about other stuff. Everything comes back into reality. And this whole thing of getting off on every stroke is like, it's like extreme gratitude that turns the pain or the suffering or the frustration of the unpleasant experience into pleasure. You're basically having some, you're, you're allowing this thing that's maybe negative. Like if you speak about, think about this in life, like let's say you're broke or let's say something just something bad happened to you or like you just experienced a failure or you experienced uh, some sort of setback. It's forcing all of your attention, right? Like we, we like to look at car, we're, we're wired to look at car crashes and, and focus on problems and obviously to try to fix them. But it's forcing your attention into the moments. Let's say you just like lost money in, in crypto. It's forcing all of your attention to your bank accounts. The way to move through this, the way to get off on it, is to really pay attention, not to block out reality, right? Like this whole thing about feeling sensation in your body is is analogous to like really taking everything of what the reality of reality is, like what is actually going on, but willingly looking at it, not having someone force your bank account in your face or, or forcing the stupid thing you said or did or the mistake you made or the unpleasant circumstance or your bad luck in your face, but like actually choosing to engage with it choosing to engage with it willingly, willingly, and then see if you could open so much that it actually becomes pleasurable. Because the more you welcome or feel an experience, the higher fidelity of your, your reality is, the, the, the higher resolution you allow reality to be, as opposed to when someone lies to themselves or tries to put a flowery gloss on things or tries to be like, oh no, my bank account's not negative, there's a million dollars in there. Obviously that's not true, so to overcome this dissonance 
you kind of have to make your reality fuzzy. It's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's a 10,000 because, I mean, obviously I'm speaking metaphors, but like you kind of make your perception of reality fuzzy so you don't have to see this thing that you're trying to resist. And finally, this whole thing, this whole thing of like pain or unpleasant things is what brings you into the moment. These so-called dark things or unpleasant things is also what makes your life interesting. And I say this in every Hero's Journey episode, like if you had no hardship in your life, your life would have no story. If there's no conflict in a movie, there'd be no movie. You wouldn't want to watch that. This is Now we're going to what could be seen as the mystical side of this. You could also just take this as the poetic or metaphoric or hero's journey part of it. The rest of this episode is stuff that I can't prove is true, but these are the perspectives I choose to have and I find them to be enjoyable. Um, if you look at things from a hero's journey perspective, let's say, uh, when you resist reality, when you try to pretend that things that on some level you know is true, but you pretend they're not true or try to not think about that, or you try to avoid this situation, you try to avoid the hard conversation, you try to avoid the thing that you know you're supposed to do, the thing that you know you want inside, but you're afraid to do it, you just try to push this away. You know, that's a recipe for apathy. I spoke about that in many of the apathy, apathy episodes. Usually, especially when a guy kind of goes numb or anhedonic or kind of like dead inside, it's because there's something he knew or she knew that he, that this person really wanted, maybe out of fear, convinced or out of shame from a cultural programming, convinced him or herself that they didn't want it. So to overcome that dissonance, everything has to go fuzzy, right? Everything has to become uh, not interesting. And then they can't feel their desire anymore because they said no to it. Um, getting off is the opposite, right? Getting off... Even on a thing that seems unpleasant, instead of hitting the brakes, because like this resistance or lying to yourself uh, is hitting the brakes on reality. It's like, no, no, I don't like this one scene in the movie, so let's just stop the movie. And then this person goes through life kind of dead and dead to the world and numb. And one day they wake up and they're 60 years old and they didn't live their lives because they were afraid to deal with an experience from when they were younger. I don't mean to judge the person. There's plenty, I mean, this is in a way what trauma is. Um, so we can have empathy for such a person. But if this is you on some level, whether it's a big thing or a little thing, the way to move through it is to learn how to get off on it. Um, getting off on it is opening up to reality and it, in it increases the speed. And like this is, you know, I can't prove this is true, um, but I did experience things like this in, in the sexual practice I spoke about. It's like when you say yes to the thing that is right now, it moves on to the next thing faster, right? Just use my embarrassing example, like when I could accept the fact that like I was kind of I was dead from the waist down, I couldn't feel anything, but I just like paid attention to it and I was with it and I accepted everything that I was or wasn't feeling. Uh, it moved on to the next thing. The mojo came back really fast actually when I stopped resisting, and then it went to like higher and higher and higher levels because I was just able to be with it is the phrase often used because. Uh, mystical idea but i believe this is true that feeling or your subjective perception and real objective reality or our closest perception of objective reality will always eventually sync up which is why again the law of attraction people will say uh be grateful for the thing that you want as if you already have it uh danielle laporte speaks about uh instead of setting goals of what you want to have it's like how do you want to feel because if you get into the feeling of the thing that you want to experience reality will come to match it. Whereas if you get into the feeling of things you don't want, you're worrying about the future, those things often happen. Can't prove that's true, but that has often been my experience. 
and I'll just end with this, and you can hear the construction outside, so we're going to close up. Uh, the challenges, the hardships, the conflicts that you experience, the frustrations, the hard times, the road of trials, if you will, uh, is exactly what makes your life story interesting, right? If you didn't have those things, you wouldn't have anything, your life wouldn't be interesting. And like, you know, I'll say, I, I speak about it a little bit critically, but a lot of people want to be life coaches these days, right? A lot of people ask me, you know, people who want to be life coaches ask me like, uh, oh, should I get a certification, blah, blah, blah. I mean, life coaching has become this thing that actually has certifications now, which is kind of ridiculous, I think. Um, as a life coach, I say this is ridiculous. Because the thing that makes someone credible, other than whatever skills or, or intelligence or ability to help people they may have, and, you know, whatever skills they learn, is that they've lived through stuff. They've lived through stuff that makes their life interesting and em empathizable, right? Like, if I didn't have problems to, I mean, if I didn't have problems to talk about, I would never have any episodes to make, right? The only things I can share that anyone gives a shit to hear about are times that I've had troubles. Not that I want more troubles, but like, that's what is interesting. That's what makes a story is there's a conflict and there's a resolution. And in closing, getting off on every stroke is essentially opening your aperture to take in more of life, to take in more reality, to feel everything to the degree that you're so accepting of what you're getting that you can find pleasure in it and really play all of life. And when you do this deeply, one, life frustrations, life challenges, stop being suffering and instead being a sensation that maybe can become pleasurable. Two, you tend to move through it. And three, whether you're interacting with a, a sapient human being or perhaps impersonal reality, if you can really get off, things kind tend to match up with what you want. Like with people, people tend to do what you want when you can really be appreciative of what you hope that they want, that you hope they do uh, without attachments. And on some perhaps mystical level, reality gives you what you want when you can really get off on it, when you can really pre-feel the gratitude. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about grounding exercises, if you're, a, if you're a man and you want to go deeper into the unconscious parts of the male psyche that we can call the masculine archetype, you may want to check out my masculine archetype challenge at masculinearchetypechallenge.com. It still comes with a free coaching call with me, so it is the most cost-effective way to work on uh, work with me one-on-one -on -one to do a call with me, a video call with me. Um, that is at uh, masculinearchetypechallenge.com. A couple of people have asked me about my history series. I'm still working on it. It's become a much bigger project than I initially intended when I started last December. Um, but I do have a site up where you can be notified when it does come out at historyofmasculinity.com. Uh, you just put in your email and on, all it is is I'll notify you about the series when it comes out. I'm, playing, which I'm trying to play with an ad model that interests me uh, with it. I, I, we may or may not have sponsors for it. But I'm trying to figure, you know, this NFT thing in the crypto space, is there a way I can uh, fund this operation? Because it's taken me six months of my life. Like, if there's a, I mean, obviously I do things, you know, I'm a capitalist. Uh, but I don't also don't, you know, anyway, this is all, all to say I'm trying to come up with a uh, mutually beneficial ad model for everyone so I can get this out and put out more episodes faster. Because it's a very, uh, I think it's a very interesting series. I'm tracking the development of cultural masculinity from the earliest prehistoric roots through the stages of warfare and the growth of society, which is war is obviously, maybe not obviously, but it's my thesis of the argument that warfare is what has shaped cultural masculinity. And finally, my, my public service announcement always, if you've been on your phone, actually I will say, 
I'm re-engaging with YouTube. I realize it is a, it's a necessity. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for watching. I would appreciate it. Subscribe. Um, but I have to say this from my own conscience. If you've been on your screen for more than 30 minutes, please get off your screen. All of my content is on the Verano Podcast. In fact, some of my content that's not in video form is on the Verano Podcast. It's everywhere where podcasts are found, so you can consume this, this type of episode without having to stare at a screen, which is bad for your brain. It's bad for your attention span. You know, whatever. Stuff, dopamine, whatever. Thanks for watching. Goodbye.